Let's pray together, shall we? Father, we thank you for the freedom that we have still in this country to hear and to teach the Word of God. And Father, we just know, Lord, that this is a very precious gift that we have. And so, Father, we thank you for the religious freedom of Great Britain at the moment. And we pray for this land of ours in Jesus' name. Father, that you will throw back all forces of anarchy. You will throw back all forces which are anti-establishment, Father, in Jesus' name. That, Father, the gospel may go forth from this land and in truth. Father, we are ashamed, Lord, that the way the Bible has been freely available for centuries now in this country. And still, Father, still people are thinking in the old way, the ways which assume that there is no God, the ways which assume that there is not a creator. And Father, we just ask in Jesus' name, Father, that through these Bible studies, there may be a transformation in our minds and in our thinking. That, Father, in every area of study, the Word of God should be brought to bear, Lord, in Jesus' name. Father, we're asking that from anthropologists right the way through, Father, to geologists, we're going to see the impact of the Word of God in all of these studies. Father, we want to see real Christian, Bible-believing MPs in our Parliament, Father. Men who won't give the party line, but will give God's line in that place, in the name of Jesus. And Father, I just pray as we study today, Father, the spread of peoples, Father, that we might see that the Word of God has got all the answers. But Father, science is just stabbing at the answers. They're trying to find them, but they haven't got them. And Father, I just pray we might be really proud of the book that you have given to us, the wonderful Holy Scriptures. And Father, we just say that we delight in them with all our hearts. Father, today we're asking that your Holy Spirit may anoint the very words, Father, of tonight. And Father, may they glisten with the Holy Spirit and drop with the love of Jesus, Father, that many should be convicted, Father, that their thinking has been wrong, that their attitudes are wrong, and that there is a God who reigns over the whole universe. Father, we ask that before we begin tonight, that Jesus may be glorified and that your saints may gird up their loins, Father. And Father, that we should be real soldiers of Christ, Father, real disciples, not just preaching the word, but thinking the right things as well, Lord. Father, we ask that this word may come into our lives and Father, transform every area of our lives in Jesus' name. Thank you, Lord. Amen. Thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name. Praise God. Tonight we come to number 10 of the prophecy series, in which I'm dealing with the prophecy of Noah found in Genesis and chapter 9. Now, may I make one thing perfectly clear before we begin? We are not people who believe that man has originated from monkeys. Could I make that perfectly clear? Um, The reason that we do not believe it is, of course, primarily because the Word of God tells us the truth about where man came from. But secondly, when we look at fossil evidence, we don't see any evidence that man has descended, um, or ascended, I suppose some would say, ascended from the beasts of the field, and from chimpanzees, and from monkeys. Whereas we do see um, definite signs of adaptation on a small level, we never find any example, and the fossil record proves this, there is never any example where one species has turned into another. Therefore, when we consider that on the face of this earth we have thousands of millions of people alive and kicking, they must have come from somewhere. If you do not believe in a God, you've got to try and explain where they came from. The basis of this Bible course is that God does exist and he is real, and more than that, that the truth is declared in his word. And the truth declares that man, every person on the face of this earth, came from one literal man who was created in the Middle East somewhere, whose name was Adam. And we also know that his wife was created from him, and her name was Eve. And we take our stand on the Bible. The Bible declares that whether we live in China, or whether we live in Ecuador, whether we're Welsh or whether we're Armenian, Every person on the face of this earth is descended from a literal Adam and a literal Eve. Praise God. That's the starting point today. In one sense, therefore, it is true that we share a common great, 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 how many number of greats there are, grandfather. That is perfectly true. Well, we don't know the whole story, 
Adam and Eve, we are told, had sons and daughters, but the actual number isn't disclosed. The one thing we do know about them is that uh, they had so many children that it caused a major population explosion within ten generations. And ten generations from Adam, already most parts of the earth had been visited by some human or other, and certain parts were fairly thickly or densely populated. All right, we can take it a step further. About the tenth generation, man had become so wicked on the face of the earth that you remember God saw that if the wickedness increased, then the earth would become totally putrid, Satan would have won the major battle as far as God was concerned, and God therefore had to take decisive action to stop the corruption and to stop the rot. And if you remember, because he's a God of grace before judgment, he sent one man whose name was Noah out to preach to the world. And we know from Scripture that 120 years went past of Noah preaching and preaching and preaching, and at the same time, he was busy building his boat. Right? We know that. And after 120 years, he hadn't got a convert. In fact, the only people who were um, God-believers or were, uh, had been redeemed in any way were his immediate family. That was all. And you remember that the flood was sent of universal proportions onto the face of the earth, and the whole surface of the earth was obliterated with all the life contained on it. You may disagree with this. You can come and see me after if you do. But this is the statement of Scripture. And that therefore, all life that is at present on the earth, while it's true that every man comes from Adam, it's also true that he must also be descended from Noah. Noah. Because Noah and his family were the only ones to survive the flood. Now that's what we know. This means something very important. That actually, all of us contained some part of the genes of Noah. Let's have a look at the people who were actually saved uh, after the flood. First of all, you had Noah, and he was married. I'll call his wife X, all right? He was married. We don't know anything about this wife. We don't know her history at all. We don't know what type of person she was. We don't know whether she had blue eyes or fair hair. We don't know anything at all about her. She might have been a negress. She might have had long, uh, flowing black hair. She might have been... Uh, gray-haired, we just don't know anything about her at all. Uh, Noah then, if you remember, had three sons. Here they are, there's Shem, there is Japheth, and there's Ham, and these were married as well. I'll call them Y, Z, and P. Well, anything will do. And so we see that after the flood, all people came from this stock of individuals, all right? Noah, Shem, Japheth, Ham, and four ladies over here. We know nothing about these four ladies. They were probably very different people. Now, all of the characteristics that are on the face of the earth, from Asia right through to South America, have come from either Noah or from uh, some of his family. Every single characteristic. You think of a type of man on the face of the earth, they were descended somewhere from Noah. Now, the marvelous thing is about this that uh, we can see this in our own families. Uh, we are the product of our father, of our mother, of their parents, of their parents before them, and so on, stretching all the way back. And you may find this that some of the characteristics of your grandparents actually come out physically in you or in your children. For example, you may have a whole family which is dark-haired and dark has dark brown eyes. You may have that. But it may be that one of your grandparents had blue eyes and fair hair. And lo and behold, uh, further along in the line, two people who are dark-haired and brown-eyed suddenly find that they have a little girl or a little boy who's got blue eyes and got fair hair. And they must look at themselves sometimes, and if they know something about their family tree, they'll know. Ah, yes, this child takes after my grandmother on my father's side, or something like this. She had fair hair or blue eyes. And so you can trace the characteristic back, if you know what you're doing. Um, sometimes, I think the British are a pretty mixed stock, sometimes we may have Spanish blood 
or we may have uh, some Phoenician blood, or we may have some other type of blood in our veins. And all the family's perfectly okay, and all of a sudden, you find one little boy or one little girl comes out, and they look decidedly Spanish. They're dark, you know? They look Mediterranean in some way. And it's because somewhere in your background, you've had someone from that area who's passed on the characteristics. Now, Noah here, and the, his wife, and his three daughters-in-law were what I call a rich genetic soup. That's the phrase I use. You imagine a soup, uh, say vegetable soup, right? And all the vegetables in the world all chopped up inside the soup. They contained every type of, of characteristic, every type of gene that is found on the face of the earth today. And all that happened was, as these started multiplying, they started having children, and the children started having distinct characteristics which then came out in their own local geographical area. You imagine this, and this will show you just how great was the genetic soup that was contained within these people. The Vikings, who were renowned for being fair-skinned, uh, fair-haired, blue-eyed, the Vikings came from Noah and his family. The British came from Noah and his family. The French, the Germans, the Russians, the Greeks, all the Negro tribes in Africa came from Noah and his family. All the Arabian tribes, the Mongolians, the Chinese. You imagine this. Coming right down into the Aboriginal groups down here in India, the southern tip of India, the Aborigines of Australia, the Maoris here of New Zealand. All of them can be traced back to Noah and his family. Right? It's such a rich ge genetic soup. And what we're going to do today is, when we consider the prophecy of Noah, we're going to trace some of these peoples round and see how God has his hand on every single group of them. And God knows exactly where they all are, and he's in control of every one. After the flood, um, Noah received distinct things from God. You imagine the scene. The whole earth, as Noah knew it, had been totally obliterated. There was nothing left on the face of the earth that Noah could say, oh yes, there's a landmark I recognize. It had all gone. And uh, with the ark up on Mount Ararat, he comes out with his family, and they have to start making a new civilization which would grow and grow and grow and eventually fill the whole surface of the earth. And he comes out, and God starts speaking to him. And God says, now Noah, he says, there are a number of things. One, go and have as many children as you can. I want you to fill the whole face of the earth. You've got to fill every single space that's available. Two, Noah, give up your vegetarian ways. That was fine before the flood. Now you've got to start eating meat. And Noah, by the way, there'll never be another, another flood. You don't have to worry. You've been pretty good at building a boat. You'll never have to build another boat as long as you live. And then the Lord said, and in case you don't believe me, I'm going to put a rainbow across the sky, and it will be my sign to you that my covenant holds true. And then Noah was left to his own devices. And it's th at this point that we come in to the passage that we're going to cover tonight in some detail. So would you turn with me to Genesis and chapter 9? Genesis and chapter 9. Where in verse 25 to 27, we find the prophecy of Noah. It's a dynamic prophecy. It's an amazing prophecy. And do you know it's one of the most neglected prophecies in the Bible? One of the most neglected prophecies in the Bible. And it's given, it contains some cursing and some blessing within it. And because it's such a dynamic prophecy, we've got to see the background to the prophecy. And actually, the background begins up in verse 18. And from verse 18 onwards, most Bible believers have read it and suspected that there's something that they haven't quite been told in it, and they've never known what it is. Tonight, I'm going to talk about the secret of Genesis chapter 9, verse 18 onwards, and it's quite a dynamic secret too. Here's Noah. Verse 18, And the sons of Noah that went forth of the ark were Shem and Ham and Japheth. And interestingly enough there, it doesn't stop. It then mentions only one of the grandchildren of Noah. Only one. He had many, many grandchildren. Only one is mentioned. And we'll see why a little later on. 
And Ham, it says, is the father of Canaan. Verse 19, these are the three sons of Noah, and of them was the whole earth overspread. And if you are a Bible believer, you have to believe that particular verse, that of them was the whole earth overspread. And whether you live in uh, Camden Town or in Deer Inverness, you have to believe that the stock that you came from came from Noah, if you are a Bible believer. Verse 20, now Noah's left to himself, and he decides that uh, he'd quite like to start gardening. Only not just gardening, he'd like to grow a few luxury crops. And so in verse 20, we have what Noah began to do. And Noah began to be an husbandman. That means he began tilling the ground and began cultivating crops. And he planted a vineyard, it says. It was probably some years since he'd tasted of the fruit of the vine. And he decided in his little chateau underneath Mount Ararat that uh, one of the best things to do would be to start distilling some wine and make it really vintage. And so he starts uh, growing grapes, and they're very, very successful, and he gets a marvelous harvest. He crushes them all under his own feet. He distills it, doesn't have one of these beer-making kits or anything like that. He just knows how to do it. Uh, it's fermented. He puts it away in the cellar. I'm joking about the chateau, by the way. He lived in a tent in these days. But uh, he put it away in a shady place and allowed it to ferment. And the day came when he decided it was clear and it was ready. And at this point, we see that Noah, in fact, didn't know how to control himself in one particular area of his life. Noah had one very definite area of weakness, and it was that he liked a touch of the alcohol and he liked the little glass of wine. In fact, not just the little glass of wine, he liked enough so that it was blotto. If we read, if we read on, verse 21, he drank of the wine and was drunken. And here's Noah, he just didn't know when to stop. He's celebrating the coming back together, as it were, of the whole earth, and at last he's got his feet on terra firma, and he's in for a good party, and so he drinks himself uh, into a stupor. And there he is, he's totally drunk. And one thing that happens when you're drunk is that the inhibitions come to the surface and here's Noah with his conscious mind put under, his subconscious mind up on top and he's having a whale of a time. Marvellous party all by himself at the moment. <laughs> and at the end of verse 21, we have an interesting statement. It says he was uncovered within his tent. And the implication there. Uh, if we just read it on the surface of Scripture, would be that in, in the course of his drunkenness that uh, his clothes became disarrayed and by the time he got back to his tent, his clothes were all open and he was exposed to the air. Every part of him was exposed to the air. That's what you think. But you see, it's something a bit more than that. And I want here to talk a little bit about the sin of Noah because he committed a very definite sin at this point. We'll understand what it is a little later on. The word uncovered here is what we call in Hebrew a hithpael, H-I-T-H-P-A-E-L, imperfect. Um, if you don't know anything about grammar, don't worry about that. A hithpael, imperfect. And this is the only time in the Bible that that particular verb to uncover to be uncovered, is used in this tense in the Hebrew. And it doesn't just mean that he went to his tent and his clothes were disarrayed. The meaning in the Hebrew is that he uncovered himself for a distinct purpose. We are talking here about a definite but undisclosed sexual sin which Noah committed. Now, we don't know what it was. I'm going to make a reasoned guess a little later on. Noah was not in any way just a drunken man. He was a man who was committing a sexual sin at this particular moment. That's what the Hebrew says. Verse 22, we see this uh, in this particular verse, that someone is watching him. And Ham, the father of Canaan, and there's the mention of Canaan again, saw the nakedness of his father. Noah by this time was in his own tent, one of the things that is established in the Word of God is that there is a thing called privacy, i.e. that Noah had the right to be private within his own tent. 
But Ham was looking at what Noah was doing, and he was deliberately infringing the privacy of his father for a distinct purpose. We know that because as soon as he left, instead of honoring and revering his father enough and keeping it to himself, he immediately goes to his two brothers, Japheth and Shem, and it says he told them what he'd, he'd seen and told his two brethren who were outside of the tent. The word told there means he denounced his father to them. He betrayed his father. Here is Ham. He's seen something going on. He immediately turns to his two brothers and he says, hey, if you want to catch sight of what your father's really like, you just go and have a look in his tent at this moment. We see here that Ham, because probably he was the youngest of Noah's children, was determined in some way to um, put his father at a disadvantage. He wanted to get something from his father, and he thought he could sort of apply a bit of blackmail as far as his father was concerned. He told his two brethren without. And here is the love and the devotion and the honor of the other two sons, because as soon as they, uh, they heard what Ham was, had said to them, they realized that this was a scene they did not want to see in any way. And they so revered their father, they took one of their rugs, they put it on their backs, they approached Noah backwards so that they wouldn't see, and they allowed the rug then to fall over their father, who was still in this drunken stupor and uncovered, uncovered in his tent, and they covered him up. That it was the love and respect that they had for their father. In verse 24, we now begin coming to the prophecy. All of this is but background. And Noah awoke from his wine. We're not told here whether he had a hangover. We don't know whether hangovers came after the flood, a long time after the flood, or whether they existed in those days. But he awoke from his wine, and notice this, it says, and knew what his young guest, it is in the Hebrew, knew what his young guest son had done unto him. Noah awakes, he finds himself uncovered, his clothes in total disarray. He finds then that he's got one of the blankets, probably, or some skin or other, belonging to Japheth or to Shem, covering him up, and he realizes that something has happened which, um, which is compromising as far as he is concerned. And I imagine the scene that he probably dresses himself properly, he picks up the skin, takes it to Japheth and says, excuse me, Japheth, but how did this come about? And Japheth would say, well, um, I'm afraid that your youngest son, Ham, has put you in a rather compromising situation. And probably related to Ham, the whole to Noah, the whole story of what Ham had done. And as soon as Noah finds out, he issues one of the most world-shattering prophecies, a prophecy which has directed the course of world history, and he issues it right at a time before, almost before, world history has begun. And we, standing at the other end of history, can look at this prophecy and say, he's got it all right, right the way through history, this prophecy has come to pass. But it begins in a most amazing way. And in verse uh, 25, we find the beginning. And he said, and what we'd expect to find here is, cursed be Ham for what he's done to me. Cursed be Ham, but he doesn't. He says, cursed be Canaan. Isn't that interesting? And yet there is no mention of Canaan having done anything there at all. So we need to make a reasoned guess at this particular point. Let me just uh, go to the sons of Ham. If you turn with me, first of all, to uh, Genesis chapter 10 and verse 6, we see the sons of Ham. Now here's Ham, and Ham actually had four sons. Here they are. You can read them for yourself. They are Cush. I'll talk about these in a minute. Mizraim, Foot, and Canaan. And you notice that there is no curse on Ham. There's no curse on Cush, Mizraim, or Foot, but there is a curse on the Canaanites. And it's at this point we can make a reasoned guess about what happened. The reasoned guess is this. We know who the Canaanites were. The Canaanites, who are famous in the Bible, were descended from this man, Canaan, who was the son of Ham. And they were famous for their sexual immorality. They were famous for their idolatry. We know, for example, that Sodom and Gomorrah were two Canaanite cities. 
who were renowned for their homosexuality. And the implication here, and in Habakkuk 2.16, where a similar phrase is used, and impl the implication here is that as soon as Ham saw his father in this drunken state, he decided that he'd get Canaan in on the act, and that Canaan would in some way interfere sexually with his grandfather. And Canaan, it seems, was a very willing uh, participant as far as this was concerned. Ham may have explained to him, now look, Canaan, we come bottom of the list as far as inheritance is concerned. If we can cause my father to stumble in some way, then he'll try and buy us off and we might get a better inheritance. It's a reasoned guess that I'm making, but a logical guess. And my guess from Scripture, and I will know when we get to heaven whether this is right, certainly explains a lot of things, is that Canaan deliberately committed some form of sexual act as far as his grandfather was concerned. We don't know what it was in any way, but Canaan deliberately set out to compromise his grandfather. And as soon as Noah hears about it, he forgets Ham. Ham will be cursed because one of his sons is cursed, Canaan. He turns on Canaan and he says, Canaan, cursed, cursed, cursed are you for what you've done to me. Cursed, oh man. All right, that's what the prophecy says. And do you know, let me tell you a very interesting fact. About 300 years ago, people used that particular verse, verse 25, to support the slave trade in the world. The English and the Americans used it to support the slave trade. Because they said, here is a curse on the Hamitic tribes, some of whom, by the way, are the Negro or black peoples. And they said, this is why we have the slave trade, we are simply fulfilling scripture, we are bringing Canaan into slavery. For the, the uh, prophecy goes on, a servant of servants shall he be unto his brethren. That's what they said. And you'll notice the phrase servant of servants. You see, we're used to this, aren't we, as far as Hebrew is concerned and Greek. We have the king of kings, not just the king. We have Jesus is king of kings, not just the Lord, Lord of lords. And here we have servant of servant, which means the lowest of the low. The lowest of the low, as far as a servant is concerned, is not just being a servant, but being an utter slave that anyone can do as they please with. And that was the justification. I'd rather imagine there are still a few people in the world who still believe that. Now, I've got news for them. Their biblical scholarship isn't very good. They are 100% wrong. Praise God. First of all, the name Ham does mean black. He was probably dark-skinned himself. But his children were not all dark-skinned. Cush here was very dark-skinned. He was black. Cush was black. But Mizraim was white. Well, a yellowy white, anyway. So what shall I call him? I'll call him white. Foot was black. But Canaan was white. Anyone who uses the curse on Canaan to support slavery doesn't know anything about basic anthropology. Canaan happened to be a white man. And the curse is on a white man, nothing to do with any black man at all. Praise God. There's no curse on, on Cush and no curse on foot at all. By the way, Cush here went over and he went down into Africa. He populated Ethiopia, then passed across the Red Sea, Ethiopia, across to the Red Sea, and occupied the southern part of the Arabian Peninsula. Foot, who was the other black person, went into Libya, uh, Libya, Libya up the top in North Africa, and he spread down and became all of the African nations that filled the continent of Africa. All right? Mizraim here, he was Egypt. Egypt. And he went into Egypt. The original Egyptians. Canaan is the one who is cursed, not the others. And so we've got to ask, okay, if Canaan was cursed, a servant of servants, and he was white, where did Canaan go and live? And the answer is, he went to live in the land of Canaan, which is present-day Palestine. Do you realize something, by the way, here? That it was at this time that it was decided where the Jews were going to live. They were going to occupy the land of Canaan because of this curse. Had Cush been cursed, Israel today would be in Ethiopia. <laughs> Had Foot been cursed, they would have been in Libya. Had uh, Mizraim been cursed, it would have been Egypt, which would have been Israel. 
But Canaan was the one who was cursed. He was a servant of servants. Okay, go to uh, Genesis 10 and verse 15 and we get a list of all the Canaanites. And Canaan begat Sidon. Who are they? The Sidonians. Tyre and Sidon, up in Lebanon. They're not there today, by the way. They've been annihilated. The present Lebanese are not these. They're someone else. Sidon, his firstborn, and Heth. Heth, or Hatti, as he's sometimes called, um, he is the father of the Hittite nation. And look at the others. These are very famous names. Verse 16. And the Jebusite, and the Amorite, and the Gergesite, and the Hivite, and the Archite, and the Sinite, and the Arvadite, and the Zemarite, and the Hamathite. And afterwards were the families of the Canaanites spread abroad, and the borders of the Canaanites was from Sidon, as thou comest to Gerar, unto Gaza, as thou goest unto Sodom, and Gomorrah, and Adma, and Zeboim, even unto Lasher. And there is the distribution that is given of the Canaanites. In other words, if we draw a map of the land of Israel, we have approximately the land of the Canaanites. Here's the eastern end of the Mediterranean, and there is the land of the Canaanites here. Some of them, by the way, the, the Sidonians up here, they became the Phoenicians. And the Phoenicians uh, travelled across the Mediterranean and they settled down in present-day Tunisia in North Africa. And they became the famous Carthaginians, as they're called. The famous Carthaginians who were just here at the tip of Tunisia. But they're all Canaanites. They're the ones who are cursed. Absolutely no one else. All right. Let's go back to the prophecy. He said, Cursed be Canaan, a servant of servants shall he be, uh, unto his brethren. In other words, Shem and Japheth would dominate him. Verse 26. Having cursed Canaan, he then goes on and he starts telling what's going to happen to the other sons. Ham um, is not mentioned. Only one of the sons, Canaan, is mentioned. Verse 26, and here's an amazing statement. It says, Blessed be the Lord God of Shem. And this statement simply means that God was going to choose the descendants of Shem to reveal things about himself. From this time on, he and the Semitic peoples were going to be one. One of the descendants, by the way, of Shem was Abraham. And the descendants of Abraham is the Jewish nation. And we read in the New Testament that it was to the Jews that was given the oracles and the revelation of God. It was to them uh, was given the privilege of being the witnesses. Isaiah 43 says, Ye shall be my witnesses, saith the Lord, talking about the Jews. And it was to them that the Bible was given. This book of Genesis was written by a Shemite. This very book, the revelation of God given to a Shemite. Blessed be the Lord God of Shem. In other words, he was saying, I and the Semitic peoples are going to have a special relationship. That's what he was actually saying. Do you remember that Jesus himself in John 4.22 says, when he's talking uh, to the Samar Samaritan woman at the well, the woman of Samaria, he says to, them very, to her very clearly, but salvation is of the Jews, he says. And finally, of course, salvation came of the Jews for the Redeemer himself, the great Messiah, the Lord of all lords, Jesus Christ, was born as a Semitic man. Jesus was a Jewish man. This is simply a statement of that fact, that Jesus would be from the line of Shem. All right. Blessed, then, be the Lord God of Shem, and then it goes on, and Canaan shall be Shem's servant. In other words, the Canaanites are really going to get it when Shem gets moving. And Shem started growing and growing and growing in number, and he started dominating the Middle East. The Jews were the main ones. And the ones who were the Hebrews, who had been caught in Egypt, spread out at the Exodus, and where did God lead them? He says, I want you to go to the land of Canaan. The Canaanites here were dwelling in quite a lot of prosperity and a lot of safety in this type of area. But God was going to fulfill his word. 
So God said, Moses, you get those children up out of the land of Egypt and straight into the land of Canaan. And they sent out spies and they looked at the land. They said, it's a fantastic land. But unfortunately, the Canaanites live there. Oh dear. And their hearts dropped. And they thought, I don't think we can manage this. If only Moses had reminded them of the uh, prophecy that Noah had had, he'd have been able to say, what? You don't think we can manage them? When God has already said they're going to be our servants? Of course we can manage them. And God led them, the children of Israel, 40 years in the wilderness before finally bringing them in to the land of Canaan. And I want to just have a look at this and to see the fulfillment of this particular, particular prophecy. If you turn to Joshua, the book of Joshua, keep your finger in the place, and chapter 3, the book of Joshua, and chapter 3, and verse 10. All right, here is the word that was given to Joshua just as they were about to march into the land. And Joshua said, Hereby shall ye know, he says, that the living God is among you, and that he will without fail drive out from before you the Canaanites, and the Hittites, and the Hivites, and the Perizzites, and the Gergesites, and the Amorites, and the Je Do you recognize all those names? The Jebusites? They're all the children of Canaan. It's fulfillment of prophecy as far as scripture is concerned. He is going to drive them all out, he says. And the battle was on, as you well know. Turn on to Joshua 9. Let's see these familiar names. You'll read them time and time again. Here are the servant of servants. The Canaanites are. Joshua 9, verse 1. The Canaanites get worried when they hear of this attack. And so they start moving in. And it came to pass when all the kings which were on this side Jordan in the hills and in the valleys and in all the coasts of the great sea over against Lebanon, the Hittite and the Amorite and the Canaanite and the Perizzite and the Hivite and the Jebusite heard thereof. Recognize the names? Canaanites, all of them, that they gathered themselves together to fight with Joshua and with Israel with one accord. And the battle is described in chapter 9 and chapter 10, but if you go to the end of chapter 10, you see the outcome. This is nothing else but Shem dominating Canaan. This is nothing else but Canaan becoming a servant of servants as far as Shem is concerned. All right, and go right to the end, to verse 40 of Joshua 10, and look what it says. So Joshua smote all the country of the hills and of the south and of the vale and of the springs and all their kings and he left none remaining but utterly destroyed all that breathed as the Lord God commanded. Some people have read the passages that are in Joshua and they think they're rather cruel. They are not cruel. They're God's judgment on the Canaanites. And the Canaanites, who were some of the most wicked people that have ever lived on the face of the earth, deserved every bit. The archaeologists, when they dig up Canaanite uh, remains, they are still, in these days, when we're fairly open-minded, you know, fairly open-minded, it's the day of pornography and all the rest, even in this day, the archaeologists are shocked and stunned by some of the things that went on among the Canaanites. They were the most depraved people that have lived on the face of this earth. And verse 41, And Joshua smote them from Kadesh Barnea, even unto Gaza, and all the country of Goshan, even unto Gibeon. And all these kings and their land did Joshua take at one time, because the Lord God of Israel fought for Israel. And Joshua returned, and all Israel with him, unto camp to Gilgal. And in the next chapter, chapter 11, you see a com uh, again a confederacy of all the Canaanite kings. All right, there they are. Look at them. Jabin, king of Hazor. Jobab, king of Maidan. King of Shimron, the king of Aksa. And to the kings that were on the north of the, of the mountains and of the plains south of Chinneroth, on the borders of Dor. And look at verse 3. And to the Canaanites on the east and on the west, and to the Amorite, and to the Hittite, and to the Perizzite, and the Jebusite in the mountains, and to the Hivite under Hebron in the land of Mizpah. And so it goes on. All right? 
the end result of that battle, a total victory as far as Shem was concerned. Joshua led the troops of Israel to total victory in fulfilment of the prophecy of um, Genesis chapter 9. All right, now can you see that? Now, let me just say this. I repeat again, it's only the Canaanites who are cursed. The Ham, Hamitic peoples, have been some of the greatest people that have lived on the face of this earth. Do you know that the Hamitic peoples spread at first more than any other tribes on the face of this earth? They weren't cursed. Look, just trace them. They started off in the Middle East. They occupied a number of areas in the Middle East. Some then spread down into India and they became um, the very black southern Indians that you find and the people of Ceylon or present-day Sri Lanka. Others went on into Burma here and occupied Southeast Asia. Other Hamites pushed down into Indonesia and the, Aboriginal Austra um, the Australian Aborigines are Hamitic. The Maoris are Hamitic. All the peoples of the Pacific, the Tongans, the Fijians, the Hawaiians, they're all Hamitic. Other of the tribe of Ham spread into Africa, occupied all of Africa, including the island of Madagascar. Other of the Hamitics spread across Central Asia, became the Mongolians up here, became the Chinese, became uh, the, the Japanese. Some spread up north, became the Eskimos. The Eskimos are from Ham. Others spread across this uh, land bridge, as it was just after the flood, down into North America, became the Red Indians. They spread down, they became the Aztecs and the Mayas, and right down and became the Incas of South America. And can you see, it's amazing. This was the dominant family on the face of the earth, Ham. He had so much guts and so much, um, uh, so much talent within him that he spread and conquered the whole world that lay before him. Some even came up into, uh, into Europe. Uh, the old Minoan civilization on Crete was Hamitic, right? They spread along to North Africa, some of them. There are even some Hamitic tribesmen right on the southern tip of South America in T Tierra del Fuego. This is Ham. There's something else about Ham. Do you know, before the 6th century BC, that they were the greatest brains on the face of the earth? Today, our civilization has a lot of inventions which have come from Ham. Today, you have used things that Ham invented. Do you know that Ham was the first to crossbreed plants to get better production? He was the first to domesticate animals like a cat and a dog, a horse, a goat, a sheep. He was the first. He was the chap that invented paper, ink, writing. Staggering when you think of it. He was the chap that invented wool. We take wool for granted. We take cotton for granted. We take linen for granted. The Hamitic peoples invented it. All these people that talk about Ham being trodden underfoot, it's rubbish. Ham was the greatest of the tribes until the 6th century BC. Who invented knitting? Ham did. Oh yes, he did. Who invented uh, crochet work? Ham did. And I'll tell you, Medicines, they were the invention of ham. Insecticides were the invention of ham. Ham had the idea of anaesthetics before anyone else. Right? He had it all. This was ham. He was the one that invented gears and pulleys. He was the one that invented clockwork and the steam engine and goodness knows what else. Ham was the dominant of all the tribes. It's only Canaan that was cursed. All right. Back to Genesis 9. And so we see verse 26... Canaan shall be Shem's servant. Okay. <coughs> Verse 27. And now on to Japheth. Most people in this room, as far as I can see, are Japhetic. You are descended from Japheth. There may be an odd strain of Shem and a little odd strain of Ham somewhere around, but I can't really see it at the moment in this room. But notice what it says. God shall enlarge Japheth. All right. And... This was not fulfilled until about the 6th century BC. In fact, some of it hasn't been ful wasn't fulfilled um, until about two or three hundred years ago. The word Japheth means enlarged. Japheth at first spread and occupied Europe. Here was Japheth in Europe. Right, most of the white peoples were there. And yet, uh, before the 6th century, the greatest uh, civilizations were Hamitic. Sumeria was Hamitic. The Hittites were Hamit Hamitic. 
the Egyptian Empire was Hamitic. The Phoenicians were Hamitic. They were the great ones. And this prophecy only came to pass about 2,600 years ago. And it started off with the Persians. And they got a bit tired of where they were living, and they're Jephitic. And they thought, we're going to move these Hamitics out. And they started moving into the north of India here, and pushing the Hamitics down to the south. And today, the present-day Indians are Jephitic tribesmen, right? They are Indo-Europeans, the present Indians. All right? They started pushing them out. And then you had the Greeks who decided that they'd had enough of the Hittites. And so they started pushing them out as well. And Japheth, all of a sudden, against all the laws that were in, uh, operative in the climate and so on of Europe, they started expanding. The real expansion, of course, was about 400 years ago. The Spanish here and the Portuguese dominated South America. They started dominating the Incas and the Mayas and the Aztecs up here. That was Japheth dominating, Cain, um, dominating the tribes of Ham. All right? That, that was the domination. Uh, then the British came down into Africa. This is the fulfillment of Japheth being enlarged, and I'm afraid at the expense of Ham in this case. And Japheth uh, moved down from Britain and dominated most of Africa with the Germans and the Spanish and the Dutch and one or two other people. Then the French took over Southeast Asia, and the Dutch took over Indonesia, and the British took over Australia, and the British took over uh, New Zealand. And then others, the French and the British and others, took over North America. And the Canadians dominated the Hamitic uh, Eskimos, the Red Indians were pushed back, and so it went on. It was the enlargement of Japheth according to the word of God. And Ham got squashed. You'll notice, by the way, there's no curse on Ham. And that's why today the Hamitic peoples are again coming into their own as far as Africa is concerned. All right? And the Ham Hamitic peoples are coming into their own again as far as Indonesia and uh, Southeast Asia is concerned. But look at this. Today, where we stand in history, this prophecy has been fulfilled. For Japheth dominates every continent now except for Africa. Asia is dominated by Russia, who is Japhetic. North America, dominated by Japheth. South America, dominated by Japheth. Greenland, dominated by Japheth. The Danes have come in and taken over, as far as the Eskimos and the Greenlandish people are concerned. Japheth has dominated the whole time. All right, so there's the first bit. God shall enlarge Japheth. And here's the marvelous thing. He shall dwell in the tents of Shem. When you dwell in someone's tent, you share their hospitality and you come into their blessing. And we know that Shem had a God and had the oracles of God. And here's an amazing prophecy, for it says that the Japhetic people would share the revelation of Shem. And when Jesus came as a Shemitic man, a Semitic man, and the Jews rejected him, he turned to the Gentiles. Of course, that included Ham as well. But you'll notice today that the church is predominantly Japhetic. It is known as being Japhetic. Western uh, Europe, Eastern Europe, Russia, these type of areas. It is a Japhetic religion. Now, of course, the marvellous thing is that anyone can join, whether you're Ham, even Canaanites, if they're around, they can all join this marvellous uh, group of people called the church. But it's really the Japhetic peoples who have now become God's witnesses. They are now dwelling in the tents of Shem. But listen, you Christians, Romans 11 speaks very clearly. Don't get high-minded about that. Oh, it's true, the Jews were cut off that you might come into the revelation, but you only stay in the revelation as you remain humble and in faith. Praise God. That's what the Word of God declares. But you see, we are dwelling today in the tents of Shem. This was written 2,500 years BC, before the church came into, into existence. Praise God. It's come exactly to pass as Noah received it. All right, but notice the last bit of the prophecy. And Canaan shall be the servant even of Japheth. Now, I've talked about it. In other words, this means that the Japhetic nations as well will come and they will pound Canaan into the ground. Now, we've seen them move Ham out, 
But they moved, they moved in as part of the, the extension prophecy. But where is the facts in history which support uh, Canaan being dominated by Japheth? It comes quite easily. We've seen one, the Greeks completely knocked out the Hittite empire. The Greeks are Japhetic, they knocked out the Hamitic ha uh, Hittites. The Minoans on Crete were completely obliterated and the Greeks came in. But the greatest is when the Romans came and they bashed Canaanites on the head once and for all. And I refer to this group who of Canaanites who went to settle in Tunisia and were called the Carthaginians. And when the Roman Empire dominated, they'd had enough of the Carthaginians who were living just opposite to them. Here's Italy, here's Carthage. They'd had enough. And they declared what were called the Punic Wars on the Carthaginians. And they gave them a real going over as well. Except that sometimes the Carthaginians had the odd victory. Do you know Hannibal, who was famous for his elephants in Europe? He was a Carthaginian. And he almost won the battle. But God's word can't be broken. And the Romans had Punic War 1, 2 and 3 and they completely obliterated the Canaanites. To show you how depraved the Canaanites were just before the final victory that the Romans had, they started offering up their children in fire and burning them alive to appease the gods of the Canaanites. And they started having mass orgies as this was going on, being driven into a frenzy by the screams of the children that they offered up. And when the Romans took over, it was one of the best days as far as humanity has, uh, in the whole history of humanity. They are, were terribly depraved people, the Canaanites. And it is in Carthage that the archaeologists have suffered really the most when they've come to look up the records of the Carthaginians. As far as I know, most of the uh, freezers and so on are not on show to the general public because they're so abhorrent and so awful. Here was the curse on Canaan. Let me just summarise. This says a number of things. And a number of things that we can say have come to pass. One, it says, Canaan will be cursed and will be obliterated. That has occurred. He has been obliterated by Shem and by Japheth, and it's come to pass. Secondly, it says that Shem would have the oracles. Never promised uh, Shem extension. That's why Shem, the Akkadians, uh, the Assyrians, the Chaldeans, they were fairly limited within the Middle East, and the Jews, fairly limited. But they had the revelation as far as God was concerned and through them came the oracles. And the third thing was that Japheth will be enlarged and where we stand in the viscera of history today we can say Amen. The word of God has come to pass. More than that, that the church would be the property of Japheth, as it were, and would have its centre in the Japhetic peoples. All this shows to us is that nations may come, nations may go, Kings may rise and kings may fall. Dictators of all sorts, totalitarian, fascist, communist may rise. But the word of God stands forever. Hallelujah. And as sure as the word of God has been written from the very pen of God, the church shall last for all eternity. Hallelujah. And we shall see the kingdom of God come on earth and all other kingdoms will be obliterated. Glory to Jesus. Amen. God bless.